Section 17 of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joe Sela. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence. Section 17. And she wept again in bitter recurrence of the previous gloom, but her heart was easy, oh, much more easy. She was quite willing to make it up with him when he came home again. He was black and surly but abated. She had broken a little of something in him and at length he was glad to forfeit from his soul all his symbols to have her making love to him. He loved her when she put her head on his knee, and he had not asked her to or wanted her to. He loved her when she put her arms round him and made bold love to him, and he did not make love to her. He felt a strong blood in his limbs again, and she loved the intent, far look of his eyes when they rested on her. Intent, yet far, not near, not with her. And she wanted to bring them near. She wanted his eyes to come to hers, to know her, and they would not. They remained intent and far and proud like a hawk's naive and inhuman as a hawk's. So she loved him and caressed him and roused him like a hawk till he was keen and instant, but without tenderness. He came to her fierce and hard like a hawk striking and taking her. He was no mystic any more. She was his aim and object, his prey. And she was carried off, and he was satisfied, or satiated at least. Then immediately she began to retaliate on him. She too was a hawk. If she imitated the pathetic plover running plaintive to him, that was part of the game. When he, satisfied, moved with a proud, insolent slouch of the body and a half-contemptuous drop of his head, unaware of her, ignoring her very existence, after taking his fill of her and getting his satisfaction of her, her soul roused, its pinions became like steel, and she struck at him. When he sat on his perch, glancing sharply round with solitary pride, pride imminent and fierce, she dashed at him and threw him from his station savagely. She goaded him from his keen dignity of a male. She harassed him from his unperturbed pride till he was mad with rage. His light brown eyes burned with fury. They saw her now like flames of anger. They flared at her and recognized her as the enemy. Very good. She was the enemy. Very good. As he prowled round her, she watched him. As he struck at her, she struck back. He was angry because she had carelessly pushed away his tools so that they got rusty. Don't leave them littering in my way, then, she said. I shall leave them where I like, he cried. Then I shall throw them where I like. They glowered at each other, he with rage in his hands, she with her soul fierce with victory. They were very well matched. They would fight it out. She turned to her sewing. Immediately the tea things were cleared away. She fetched out the stuff, and his soul rose in rage. He hated beyond measure to hear the shriek of calico as she tore the web sharply, as if with pleasure, and the run of the sewing machine gathered in a frenzy in him at last. "'Aren't you going to stop that row?' he shouted. "'Can't you do it in the daytime?' She looked up sharply, hostile from her work. "'No, I can't do it in the daytime. I have other things to do. Besides, I like sewing, and you're not going to stop me doing it.' Whereupon she turned back to her arranging, fixing, stitching, his nerve jumped with anger as the sewing machine started and stuttered and buzzed. But she was enjoying herself. She was triumphant and happy as the darting needle danced ecstatically down a him, drawing the stuff along under its vivid stabbing irresistibly. She made the machine hum. She stopped it imperiously. Her fingers were deft and swift and mistress. If he sat behind her stiff with impotent rage, it only made a trembling vividness come into her energy. On she worked. At last he went to bed in a rage and lay stiff away from her. And she turned her back on him. And in the morning they did not speak except in mere cold civilities. And when he came home at night, his heart relenting and growing hot for love of her, when he was just ready to feel he had been wrong, and when he was expecting her to feel the same, there she sat at the sewing machine. The whole house was covered with clipped calico. The kettle was not even on the fire. 
She started up, affecting concern. Is it so late? she cried. But his face had gone stiff with rage. He walked through to the parlor. Then he walked back and out of the house again. His heart sank. Very swiftly she began to make his tea. He went black-hearted down the road to Ilkston. When he was in this state he never thought. A bolt shot across the doors of his mind and shut him in, a prisoner. He went back to Ilkston and drank a glass of beer. What was he going to do? He did not want to see anybody. He would go to Nottingham, to his own town. He went to the station and took a train. When he got to Nottingham, still he had nowhere to go. However, it was more agreeable to walk familiar streets. He paced them with a mad relentlessness, as if he were running amuck. Then he turned to a bookshop and found a book on Bamberg Cathedral. Here was a discovery. Here was something for him. He went into the quiet restaurant to look at his treasure. He lit up with thrills of bliss as he turned from picture to picture. He had found something at last in these carvings. His soul had great satisfaction. Had he not come out to seek, and had he not found, he was in a passion of fulfillment. These were the finest carvings, statues he had ever seen. The book lay in his hands like a doorway. The world around him was only an enclosure, a room, but he was going away. He lingered over the lovely statues of women. A marvelous finely wrought universe crystallized out around him as he looked again at the crowns, the twining hair, the women faces. He liked all the better the unintelligible text of the German. He preferred things he could not understand with the mind. He loved the undiscovered and undiscoverable. He pored over the pictures intensely. And there were wooden statues, holes he believed that meant wood. Wooden statues so shapen to his soul. He was a million times gladdened. How undiscovered the world was, how it revealed itself to his soul. What a fine, exciting thing his life was at his hand. Did not Bamberg Cathedral make the world his own? He celebrated his triumphant strength in life and verity and embraced the vast riches he was inheriting. But it was about time to go home. He had better catch a train. All the time there was a steady bruise at the bottom of his soul, but so steady as to be forgettable. He caught a train for Ilkston. It was ten o'clock as he was mounting the hill to Cossethay, carrying his limp book on Bamberg Cathedral. He had not yet thought of Anna, not definitely. The dark finger pressing a bruise controlled him thoughtlessly. Anna had started guiltily when he left the house. She had hastened preparing the tea, hoping he would come back. She had made some toast and got all ready. Then he didn't come. She cried with vexation and disappointment. Why had he gone? Why couldn't he come back now? Why was it such a battle between them? She loved him. She did love him. Why couldn't he be kinder to her, nicer to her? She waited in distress. Then her mood grew harder. He passed out of her thoughts. She had considered indignantly what right he had to interfere with her sewing. She had indignantly refuted his right to interfere with her at all. She was not to be interfered with. Was she not herself and he the outsider? Yet a quiver of fear went through her. If he should leave her. She sat conjuring fears and sufferings till she wept with very self-pity. She did not know what she would do if he left her, or if he turned against her. The thought of it chilled her, made her desolate and hard. And against him, the stranger, the outsider, the being who wanted to arrogate authority, she remained steadily fortified. Was she not herself? How could one who was not of her own kind presume with authority? She knew she was immutable, unchangeable. She was not afraid for her own being. She was only afraid of all that was not herself. It pressed round her. It came to her and took part in her, in form of her man. This vast, resounding, alien world which was not herself. And he had so many weapons. He might strike from so many sides. When he came in at the door, her heart was blazed with pity and tenderness. She looked so lost and forlorn and young. She glanced up afraid. And she was surprised to see him, shining-faced, clear and beautiful in his movements, as if he were clarified, and a startled pang of fear, and shame of herself went through her. 
They waited for each other to speak. Do you want to eat anything, she said. I'll get it myself, he answered, not wanting her to serve him. But she brought out food, and it pleased him she did it for him. He was again a bright lord. I went to Nottingham, he said mildly. To your mother, she asked in a flash of contempt. No, I didn't go home. Who did you go to see? I went to see nobody. Then why did you go to Nottingham? I went because I wanted to go. He was getting angry that she again rebuffed him when she was so clear and shining. And who did you see? I saw nobody. Nobody? No, who should I see? You saw nobody you knew? No, I didn't, he replied irritably. She believed him and her mood became cold. I bought a book, he said, handing her the propitiatory volume. She idly looked at the pictures. Beautiful, the pure women, with their clear-dropping gowns. Her heart became colder. What do they mean to him? He sat and waited for her. She bent over the book. Aren't they nice? He said, his voice roused and glad. Her blood flushed, but she did not lift her head. Yes, she said, in spite of herself. She was compelled by him. He was strange, attractive, exerting some power over her. He came over to her and touched her delicately. Her heart beat with wild passion, wild raging passion. But she resisted as yet. It was always the unknown, always the unknown, and she clung fiercely to her known self, but the rising flood carried her away. They loved each other to transport again, passionately and fully. Isn't it more wonderful than ever, she asked him, radiant like a newly opened flower, with tears like dew? He held her closer. He was strange and abstracted. It is always more wonderful, she asseverated in a glad child's voice, remembering her fear and not quite cleared of it yet. So it went on continually, the recurrence of love and conflict between them. One day it seemed as if everything was shattered, all life spoiled, ruined, desolate, and laid waste. The next day it was all marvelous again, just marvelous. One day she thought she would go mad from his very presence. The sound of his drinking was detestable to her. The next day she loved and rejoiced in the way he crossed the floor. He was sun, moon, and stars in one. She fretted, however, at last over the lack of stability. When the perfect hours came back, her heart did not forget that they would pass away again. She was uneasy. The surety, the surety, the inner surety, the confidence in the abidingness of love, that was what she wanted. And that she did not get. She knew also that he had not got it. Nevertheless, it was a marvelous world. She was for the most part lost in the marvelousness of it. Even her great woes were marvelous to her. She could be very happy, and she wanted to be happy. She resented it when he made her unhappy. Then she could kill him, cast him out. Many days she waited for the hour when he would be gone to work. Then the flow of her life, which he seemed to dam up, was let loose, and she was free. She was free. She was full of delight. Everything delighted her. She took up the rug and went to shake it in the garden. Patches of snow were on the fields. The air was light. She heard the ducks shouting on the pond. She saw them charge and sail across the water, as if they were setting off on an invasion of the world. She washed the rough horses, one of which was clipped smooth on the belly, so they wore a jacket and long stockings of brown fur. Stand kissing each other in the wintry morning by the churchyard wall. Everything delighted her now he was gone. The insulator, the obstruction removed, the world was all hers in connection with her. She was joyfully active. Nothing pleased her more than to hang out the washing in a high wind that came full butt over the round of the hill, tearing the wet garments out of her hands, making flap, flap, flap of the waving stuff. She laughed and struggled and grew angry, but she loved her solitary days. Then he came home at night, and she knitted her brows because of some endless contest between them. As he stood in the doorway, her heart changed. It steeled itself. The laughter and zest of the day disappeared from her. 
she was stiffened. They fought an unknown battle, unconsciously. Still, they were in love with each other. The passion was there. But the passion was consumed in a battle, and the deep, fierce, unnamed battle went on. Everything glowed intensely about them. The world had put off its clothes and was awful with new, primal nakedness. Sunday came when the strange spell was cast over her by him. Half she loved it. She was becoming more like him. All the weekdays there was a glint of sky and fields. The little church seemed to babble away to the cottages the morning through. But on Sundays, when he stayed at home, a deeply colored, intense gloom seemed to gather on the face of the earth. The church seemed to fill itself with a shadow, to become big, a universe to her. There was a burning of blue and ruby, a sound of worship about her. And when the doors were opened and she came out into the world, it was a world new created. She stepped into the resurrection of the world, her heart beating to the memory of the darkness and the passion. If, as very often, they went to the march for tea on Sundays, then she regained another, lighter world that had never known the gloom and the stained glass and the ecstasy of chanting. Her husband was obliterated. She was with her father again, who was so fresh and free in all daylight. Her husband, with his intensity and his darkness, was obliterated. She left him. She forgot him. She accepted her father. Yet as she went home again with the young man, she put her hand on his arm tentatively. A little bit ashamed, her hand pleaded that he would not hold it against her, her recusancy. But he was obscured. He seemed to become blind, as if he were not there with her. Then she was afraid. She wanted him. When he was oblivious of her, she almost went mad with fear, for she had become so vulnerable, so exposed. She was in touch so intimately. All things about her had become intimate. She had known them near and lovely, like presence hovering upon her. What if they should all go hard and separate again, standing back from her terrible and distinct, and she, having known them, should be at their mercy? This frightened her. Always her husband was to her the unknown to which she was delivered up. She was a flower that has been so tempted forth into blossom, and has no retreat. He had her nakedness in his power. And who is he? What was he? A blind thing, a dark force without knowledge. She wanted to preserve herself. Then she gathered him to herself again and was satisfied for a moment. But as time went on and on, she began to realize more and more that he did not alter, that he was something dark, alien to herself. She had thought him just the bright reflex of herself. As the weeks and months went by, she realized that he was a dark opposite to her and that they were opposites, not compliments. End of section 17. Recording by Joe Sela.